I am William Castle, the director of the motion picture you're about to see. At any time you are conscious of a tingling sensation, you may obtain immediate relief by screaming. Don't be embarrassed about opening your mouth and letting rip with all you've got. And remember this, a scream at the right time may save your life. Let's go back a few years to a simpler time, the end of the 50s, where monsters and ghosts and slapstick comedies reign supreme. Films came out and you only had one chance to see them and then would most likely disappear forever. Likewise, studios only had one shot to get your butt in a seat and one director took every measure to show you a stupid good time once you were there. William Castle was a true showman director, a guy that would show up at his premieres in a coffin, rig chairs with electric buzzers, and get insurance agencies to insure audiences in case they died in the theater because the movie was so scary. Today we talk about a legend, William Castle, the grandfather of gimmicks. This is Slums of Film History, a lowbrow look into the high art of cinema. Every episode is an in-depth look into a niche topic of film that is not normally discussed in polite company. I'm Slate. And I'm Tom. And each week one of us researches our respective topic, writes an episode, and schools the other. We discuss everything from Satanists to avenging hookers to castration. If there's a film subject too taboo, we haven't found it yet. Welcome. Hi, Tom. Hey, Slate. How are you? Oh, man, I'm, I'm ecstatic. Good, good. Well, we're in the last lap of season two Yes, now. we are. Yes, indeed. And I wanted to do some shout outs of just some stuff that we've been hearing kind of along the way. Oh, cool. I know that you've got a couple too. So one of the funniest things was a user private messaged me on Facebook, and his name is Alex G. And he said that he's been taken to calling us sex and violence. <laughs> Clearly, you're violence. I think that's wrong. I think that I'm probably sex. <laughs> I'm probably violence. That yeah, makes yeah. sense. I yeah. thought that was hilarious. That's pretty so. funny. Also, I did want to call out, we had talked about Pulp Fiction in Head Trauma, and my cousin, Sarah, who's a avid follower, called out that we actually saw Pulp Fiction together in the movie theater. That's funny. As a double feature, then we went and saw Nell, and it's so <laughs> funny that we saw one of the finest films of all time, Pulp Fiction, right. then we saw Nell, and we talked like Nell for the next, you know, like six months probably terrible. after that. It was like, the, really, the takeaway was, let's talk like a person that has special needs. Right. You had a correction on head trauma right yeah fucked up so i talked about in head trauma the scene in the omen where a guy gets his head cut off and i said it was actor patrick troughton that that happened to and i was wrong it was david warner whose head was cut off by a sheet of glass in the omen Hmm, okay. So thanks that, for pointing that out. That came from Paul. And then one of my co-workers uh, said to me, his name's David, he said, you said biopic in, I guess that must have been rabies. It's actually pronounced biopic. Did you I know that? I thought you said it biopic. I think I said biopic. 
I don't know. When he told me, I was like, I said it wrong then because I didn't know how to say it. And I was like, biopic. Yeah, it's pronounced biopic. Interesting. Last season, I had somebody call out that there's this movie called Visitor Q, which has all kinds of bodily fluids, but specifically breast milk. We didn't talk about breast milk. No, we didn't so talk about breast milk. We'll have to so figure out a place to put that. But anyway, that came from listener Alex A. And then you <laughs> missed something, didn't you? I did. I missed another Takashi Miike film in bodily fluids. Of course, I talk about all the different types of interesting jizz and things. And there's a scene in a movie called Ichi the Killer where the opening title sequence is actually comes out through a puddle of jizz. Huh, so uh, yeah, I forgot to put that in there. You know, there was a you know the movie Shame with Michael Fassbender. With massive Michael Fassbender. One of the posters. It was a foreign poster, of course. It's just typography, and the word shame is written in jizz. Oh, that's cool. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I think that was all of our call outs to do this episode. Yeah. All right. So this episode a little different. I did Doris Wishman last season. Yep. And now I'm going to do William Castle. I'm a little nervous that this one is going to be a, a bit PG rated. So Tom, this I'll is your you. permission we'll to drop the F-bomb oh, like every no, other I'm word. I'm all over it, man. Yeah. But I do have to do one that I can kind of bleep out and then send to my mom because uh, she won't <laughs> listen to the, uh, the good podcast, ones. Right. Uh, even though she you know, watches the Alice in Wonderland porn with my dad and a friend, but yeah, will not cannot listen to Tom say jizz over and over again. Right. I guess. Yeah, your parents are great. I love those perverts. All right. So the first question that I'm going to kind of have to answer here in this episode is who the hell is William Castle? <laughs> yeah. And why do an episode on him? The short answer is Castle was a film director from the mid 40s to the early 70s that made B pictures, usually a little bit over an hour and on a very small budget. Yeah. B pictures exploited larger A pictures at the time. It still doesn't now and usually showed second on a double feature bill he made numerous films a year in fact in 1954 he made eight films wow that's how quick and like cheaply he worked (laughs) his movies were nothing special usually westerns but they usually made money and the studios love working with him right but when he finally set off on his own to make movies in the mid 50s he wanted to try something very different namely horror films And over the next six years, he churned out low-budget horror films with completely over-the-top gimmicks to audiences. Everything from flying skeletons to seat buzzers to showing up at premieres (laughs) in a coffin. He had this kind of like P.T. Barnum-like schlock gimmicks. But they're fascinating, and they've fascinated filmmakers ever since. And it's funny because, you know, he was an otherwise very everyday horror director, but he has a place now in, in history books. And they call him kind of the master, but but I say the grandfather of gimmicks. But let's back up a little bit. Okay. William Castle was born William Schloss Jr. in New York City in 1914. At 15, he dropped out of school to work on Broadway. After his father died, he used his inheritance to buy a theater in Connecticut that was actually owned by Orson Welles. Oh, wow. The legend goes, according to his biography, that he wrote a script and got a star, but he couldn't sell any tickets without the Orson Welles name on the theater. Huh. So here's what he did. The show was called Not for Children, and it featured a German actress that had left Germany due to the war. Apparently, she was asked by Hitler, I think very indirectly, to come back to Germany. William Castle tipped off the press that she was outwardly defying Hitler and wrote a letter to Hitler and published it in like all of these newspapers (laughs) (laughs) saying she would not return. This stirred up some free publicity. But then the night before the opening, he went to his own theater and spray painted swastikas all over it. (laughs) 
the show sold out immediately. Wow. So like going to see this play was kind of synonymous to showing your opposition to Hitler at the time. Oh, that's cool. Uh, so that was kind of like his first gimmick to an otherwise unremarkable play. And of course, the it was a huge success. That's neat. That's great. Yeah. Fuck you, Hitler. <laughs> Dear Hitler, fuck off. <laughs> so William Castle was recruited to Hollywood after this and he began making films. His first was a shitty crime drama called The Chance of a Lifetime, but it was a super bad flop. His second film was a film version of the radio show The Whistler, and it did much better. The Whistler is about a man who, after his wife dies, hires a hitman to kill him unexpectedly. But then he finds out that his wife is still alive, but it's too late to take back the deal. So he lives in danger of being murdered at any second, which is actually a pretty great... That's pretty that's good. A good, why, good why is it called The Whistler? The Whistler? I don't know. He whistles, maybe. I don't... I'm just making things up. Now. Right, yeah. yeah. Good enough for me. I am The Whistler. And I know many things, for I walk by night. I know many strange tales hidden in the hearts of men and women who have stepped into the shadows. Yes, I know the nameless terrors of which they dare not speak. So The Whistler ended up having seven sequels. You remember movies back then? Whistler 2, Whistler 2. <laughs> Keep on whistling. Furious. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> remember movies back then were kind of like, they, they weren't really called sequels. They were more like serials. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that was kind of like was a This serial. time is personal. Right. The yeah, Whistler. Gotcha. The yeah. Whistler, yeah. No, that's cool. Right. Yeah, no Whistler worse. of death. Yeah, nice. And he ended up directing two of them. He proved himself in Hollywood, and he was given like a buttload more projects that he always delivered on time and usually under budget. Between 1944 and 1956, he directed 37 movies. Fuck. Yeah, so that's an average of three movies per year. Can you imagine? No, that's crazy. Things were going fine, but then he went to the movies in 1956, and he saw the French film Diabolique and decided he wanted to try something a little different. I say a little different because what he really wanted to do was not make a completely brand new original idea like Diabolique. He wanted to rip off Diabolique for American audiences. Fair enough, yeah. Une baignoire. Diabolique. Un costume d'homme. Diabolique. Une malle en osier. Diabolique. Remember, horror movies were a lot different back then. Yeah. There would usually be a lot of exposition for a very long time and then some jumps at the end. And when you compare that to something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Scream, where there's constantly, you know, screams throughout the whole movie. Right, right, right. It was a very different style of horror movie back then. Yeah. And of course, there was no home video. So you really only had one chance to like get people, you know, to see the movie, which was at the theater. And then the goal was to kind of get people to tell their friends or maybe even come back like a second time sure yeah with all of this knowledge william castle mortgages house to finance the film macabre in 1958 okay so wait is it macabre or macabre what did i say he said macabre like chubacabra but i think macabre. It, <laughs> it would have been funny if it was named chubacabra yeah it would have been i think it's i think it's what you said macabre okay macabre okay. you know what i'm saying macabre has a pretty overcomplicated <laughs> plot especially when the real plot twist spoiler alert is that an elaborate horror story tricks the main character as well as the audience okay into being frightened to death to collect insurance money This was the wildly shocking ending to Diabolique that would be ripped off for years. Remember in Doris Wishman that I told you it was knocked off and Satan was a lady? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
So knowing that he was blatantly copying Diabolique, he decided to one-up it. In his first gimmick, he took out an insurance policy on every theater goer that entered the movie. At the door, they were handed a slip of paper that they were to fill out the name of the beneficiary of their estate if they were to die of fright. If they did, the producers would pay $1,000 to the family. Your attention, please. During every suspenseful moment of the running of the motion picture macabre, the life of everyone in the theater will be insured by Lloyds of London for $1,000 against death by fright. However, even Lloyds of London will not grant coverage for any person with a known heart condition or for suicide by any member of the audience. This crazy, stupid, like, harebrained scheme worked. He took the film on the road, a gimmick that he would do for years, and made public appearances, even having registered, probably not real, nurses at the theaters to be on watch in case anyone fainted or died. Hmm. Of course, no one did, but the thought that this movie was frightening enough to need an insurance policy brought people in droves. Then to further promote it, he had a hearse park outside the theater where pallbearers would open the back, take out a coffin, and take it into the theater. Then Castle himself would emerge from the coffin to, of course, delighted audiences. Um, Sometimes he would plant fainters in the audience and (laughs) stop the film when they fainted so that the nurses would have something to do. You know, they would come out and everybody would. He would just make a big stink, like right in the middle of the movie. He had ambulances sit outside the theaters and special audio messages informing people of their insurance policy, as if anyone could forget. He used a few of these gimmicks in later films as well, but this was kind of like only the beginning of these stupid gimmicks that he did. Well, let me ask you, let me cut in here real quick. Yeah. So with this, when he was doing this, how effective was that, this uh, initial onset? I mean, did people like, oh, that's corny, or did people actually fall for it? No, it was fun. I mean, it was it was one of those, you know, More things. campy fun, is it? It was like, you know, you go to the movies, you sit down, you watch a movie, and then you leave. This was kind of like, it was an experience. You know, the movies were shit. Oh, no, you no know? of course. So anything to live them up, I guess. Yeah, it's kind of like, it's like the difference between watching the Rocky Horror Picture Show on VHS at home, and then watching it in the, in theater, the theater at midnight, where you paper and rice yeah, and it's shit. the same movie. It's right. just a more fun experience. So it's funny that you should ask. So he spent less than nine hundred thousand dollars on macabre, macabre, macabre. Yeah, whatever, macabre. Okay. Who gives a shit at this point? On yeah. macabre. Yeah. By the end of the tour, it made five million dollars. Wow. So that was a shit ton of money that back was, then. That was a good investment, and obviously a very good, very good investment. So in nineteen fifty nine, he made House on Haunted Hill. Based, oh wow, yeah. Yeah, based on kind of on the classic book, The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. This is probably one of his most famous movies. Mm-hmm. He got aging Vincent Price to star as an eccentric man throwing a party for his wife by inviting five people that he would pay $10,000 if they could spend a full night in a haunted house. It has a kind of complicated plot after that, but the climax comes as a fake skeleton comes out of a vat of acid designed to scare the shit out of Vincent Price's wife, which it does, and she falls into a vat of acid herself and dies. It's actually not that bad of a movie, but here's what William Castle did to kind of like up the ante. Okay. So essentially, that was the same ending of Diabolique, which he had already ripped off, you know, once right. before. He rigged the theaters with what he called Emergo, or I think it was probably supposed to be pronounced Emergo, which was a way of dialing up the excitement of the moment that the skeleton comes out. Okay. Emergo was a box on the side of the screen that went unnoticed, but when the skeleton jumps out of the acid in the movie, the door of the box would open and a plastic skeleton would emerge from kind of like what looked like the screen and scare the shit out of the audience. 
it would then rise above the audience and fly over their heads because it was like attached to a string that connected to the projection booth. It would then withdraw back into the box as it does in the movie. Oh, cool. Needless to say, this was both hilarious and stupid, but it was wildly successful. Some audiences were genuinely scared, but the majority went to throw things at it, um, <laughs> mainly young middle school age boys. Of course. And that would kind of be like the target for the rest of his films. They were easy to scare and would go to the theaters numerous times to watch the same movie and launch things, slingshot rocks and popcorn. And Did anyone ever knock it over? Did anyone actually break it? I don't think anybody actually broke it because I don't really think that it worked that well to start with. Gotcha. You know, I think it was one of those things that sounded like a great idea. And I mean, there's only like one or two pictures of it. It just looks hokey as all shit. But, you know, these boys, these young boys, middle school, high school boys loved William Castle and they loved to get autographs from him as he passed through their towns and touring his movies. So, And I totally, as a kid, I would totally go to a movie to throw shit at a flying skeleton. Absolutely. I'd do that now, to be honest. Yeah, no, it does sound fun. Yeah. And then his next gimmick was just kind of like ball out nuts and that was the movie The Tingler with Vincent oh, Price. Oh, The Tingler. Yeah. I know this movie. So The Tingler may be his most famous of all of his gimmicks. Um, it's my personal favorite. The Tingler is about, I'm going to tell you the plot but you're going to have to bear with me a little gotcha. bit yeah, because no it just doesn't make any sense. Okay. So a centipede worm-like thing about a foot and a half long lives inside of every human being. It rests on the back of their spinal column. Okay. So this tingler lives inside you, inside Tom, of us all, uh, and it sits on your spinal. I named my tingler. Call him Tingly. Originally, yeah. not very creative. Mm-hmm. So Vincent Price is a doctor, and his patient—it's so stupid. I don't even need to tell you. The climax comes when the tingler, which has been extracted out of a woman's body, escapes. And it goes crawling into a movie theater where it starts wreaking havoc on unsuspecting theater goers. So here's the gimmick. You're watching the movie. So in the movie, the tingler gets loose in the movie theater. Okay. And Vincent Price shuts off the movie and instructs people to scream for their lives. At the same time that that's happening in the movie, your screen goes black too. Gotcha. So when people were in the audience of the movie, they they were designed to think that the tingler is loose in their theater. That makes sense. So audiences in a blacked out theater theater are screaming the projectionist hits a button which triggers all these like tiny buzzers underneath the seats which william castle had rigged Mm -hmm. so people were sitting in the dark screaming and then their seats give them an electric shock like in their ass to make (laughs) them think that the tingler is attacking them so he like buzzed all of these seats and like mini electrocuted people so that they would think that the tingler was like in the theater it was like kind of bonkers a little bit that is bonkers ladies and gentlemen Please do not panic, but scream, scream for your lives. The tingler is loose in this theater, and if you don't scream, it may kill you. Scream, scream, keep screaming, scream for your lives. It's here, it's over here. The tingler has been paralyzed by your screaming. There is no more danger. We will now resume the showing of the movie. 
Obviously, this was the kind of a complicated process, but it was hugely successful. William Castle toured it once again and stood back and watched and laughed as he like buzzed the butts of teenagers across the United States. He again planted fainters in the audience to faint and nurses to carry them out on stretchers. He wanted the theater to be like pandemonium for his movies, and a lot of them were. In an interesting side note, John Waters writes in his book Crackpot that by the time the Tingler made it to Baltimore, only a few seats in the theater were rigged so John Waters would like go around and look under all of them so that he made sure that he was getting buzzed you know That's like right at the right scenes and he saw the movie like a thousand times of course times. he did yeah. let me say three things about that mm-hmm. one that's a very meta concept for that time yeah so that's cool two initially a tingler i thought maybe it was a movie about a sex toy gone crazy or something uh-huh yeah, yeah. i mean it's that it <laughs> the buzzers were kind of the same thing right, but right there right. was probably people that really enjoyed that yeah and the third thing is that stands to be remade like i like the concept of having some sort of creature living in people in their spine as a weird concept sci-fi thing uh-huh yeah not invading people in the movie theater but i like the i don't know why i just think that that's a very cronenberg-esque concept that could be done really well if someone were to re- well, it would wouldn't take much to do it better because the tingler you can see the strings that they use sure, to sure. like but it looks like they have you ever seen one of those giant gummy worms it's like three pounds yeah. that's what it looks like the and, gummy it, burn that... and you can see the strings that are like pulling it i mean it's the most unscary thing you've but i mean if somebody seen. updated it as a body horror movie yeah that's that's great and called it the tingler yeah that's yeah. fine cronenberg mm-hmm. Yeah. Make it happen. All right. William Castle's next film was less of a film and more of a concept that then he turned into a film to house the concept. It was called 13 Ghosts from early 1960. Ooh. Yeah. I say early because something big was about to happen to cinema later that year. But 13 Ghosts is about a family that inherits a haunted house from a rich relative and have to move into it because they, they broke. The house is haunted by 13 ghosts and they can only see them through special goggles. And so before audiences walked into the theaters, they were handed special cardboard cards. They kind of look like flat 3D glasses. Okay. If you look through the red lens, you could see the ghosts. But if you were like a a fraidy cat, then you could watch through the blue lens and the ghosts would disappear. Wowee. Do you have trouble seeing ghosts? Of course you do. Unless you have these special ghost viewers. Get them at the theater, please, so you can see the ghosts in the new movie 13 Ghosts. That's telling them, Charlie. The new ghost viewer is the big new movie thrill you kids and your family will really scream at when you see 13 ghosts come to life in color. See 13 Ghosts, a wonderful movie for the whole family. It kind of like wasn't really very great. The glasses barely worked and you could see the ghosts really without using either of the lenses. Sure. But people came regardless, mostly kids. 13 Ghosts <laughs> seemed a little shittier in contrast to House on Haunted Hill and The Tingler. Right. Audiences were like starting to get a little savvier and William Castle was being pegged as kind of a poor man's Alfred Hitchcock at the time, namely because he was appearing in all of his films similar to the way that Alfred Hitchcock was in Alfred Hitchcock Presents, the TV show. Oh, yeah. Just as 13 Ghosts all of a sudden seemed a little stale, the entire movie industry was about to completely follow suit. We're just at the part where 1959 turns into 1960, and the movie industry was about to see its biggest significant change since the breakup of the studios by the Supreme Court in 1948. Okay. And that huge change, of course, was Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. 
we have a quiet little motel when in fact it has now become known as the scene of the crime. Why, she wouldn't even harm a fly. I know we talk about Psycho pretty often in this series. We have, yeah. William Kessel and Hitchcock had a lot in common, especially right around 1960. Both had made a name for themselves, while Kessel made tiny-budget, independent, shitty horror movies with stupid gimmicks for teenagers. Hitchcock was making huge, blockbuster, highbrow studio films. But it's funny, they were both kind of unique at their craft. Yeah. And this was at the time when very few director names were selling points. But everybody knew what they were getting into with a William Kessel movie, or with an Alfred Hitchcock movie. Yeah, yeah. But Hitchcock was in a rut. He was being pressured to make another huge star, huge budget blockbuster like his last film, North by Northwest. But he didn't want to keep doing the same thing. In fact, he envied the low budget black and white shock films that William Castle and Roger Corman were churning out. He reportedly loved House on Haunted Hill, and he and William Castle were friendly acquaintances. He read the book Psycho and got the idea to make it the way that William Castle made movies. The studios were totally against it. Have you seen the movie Hitchcock? It was with... Um, no, I didn't. Uh, Anthony Hopkins. Anthony played Hopkins playing Hitchcock. Yeah. I didn't see it, no. It's kind of not a great movie. It's a little all over the place. Yeah, but it was that. a really interesting time in history to kind of choose if you're going to do you know, a movie about Alfred Hitchcock. This was kind of the time to do it. But yeah. anyway, the studios were totally against it from the start. And Hitchcock eventually made it for under a million of his own dollars in black and white and using the TV crew from his show, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. But he did one more thing to guarantee the success of Psycho. He came out with a gimmick. Do you know this gimmick that Hitchcock did? Actually, you told me, but I forgot, so go ahead and tell me again. So up until 1960, people went in and out of movies while they were playing. Sometimes you went to see the movie, sometimes to like make out in the back row, or sometimes just because it was air-conditioned. Theaters didn't care if you watched it or not, as long as you paid for your ticket. Yeah. Hitchcock decided to mandate theater owners to not let anyone into the theater after the movie had already started. Oh, yeah. Okay, I do remember this whole thing, yeah. There are a few different accounts of why he did this. The first being that Janet Lee was receiving top billing, and if an audience member walked in after the first hour, she would have already been dead, and they would have probably asked for their money back. But the real reason was probably because he saw what a little publicity could do for a movie that audiences may be on the fence about. Yeah. It worked. Moviegoers lined up around the block to see this different side of the normally very highbrow suspense director. Um, There were signs outside every showing featuring Hitchcock pointing at his watch and a handwritten time that let the audiences know when the next showing was. Even Paramount complied with this. They actually hired Pinkerton guards to enforce the rule. (laughs) That's great. It also didn't hurt that the movie delivered on all of the shocks that it promised. Oh, yeah. Something that Castle could never really quite do. A lot of film historians would end up saying Psycho not only ripped William Castle off, but did something even worse. He one-upped him. But you don't have to feel too bad for William Castle because he turned right back around and ripped off Psycho. (laughs) Of course he did. After 13 Ghosts was mildly successful and Psycho was a huge hit, Castle needed better scripts. Audiences were expecting real human shock now, not a lowbrow monster or a ghost movie. He released Homicidal in 1961 to give Hitchcock a run for his money, and he kind of did. For the first time in screen history, a special interval will be provided during the running of this picture for refunding your admission. If you're unable to stand the almost unbearable suspense, the almost paralyzing shock of homicidal. 
homicidal is about a weird woman named Emily that keeps murdering people so she can inherit an old lady's money. Do you notice any patterns here? Like no. every single movie <laughs> is to in- inherit insurance right. money. Yeah. So there's a small cast of really odd characters, but there's this one really weird guy with a weird dubbed voice and you can't really like quite put your finger on. So spoiler, the weird guy is also weird Emily. The actress plays a woman and a man in the same movie. Wow. It's kind of a similar yet less graphic plot twist a la Sleepaway Camp. Um <laughs> I always laugh when we bring up Sleepaway Camp. Yeah, yeah, which is in every episode because it's the best movie ever. Yeah. And that also, I need to remind myself, in season three, I'm doing an episode called LGBT Psychopaths. Oh, good. It has to happen. I'm sure it will. I'm excited to see it. So William Castle didn't really need a gimmick for this movie. It was pretty decent. You know, I mean, the gimmick was that, you know, that it was actually a decent movie, kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But of course, he tagged one on anyway. So right before you find out that Emily is also Warren, a clock appears on screen and starts counting down to give the audience an opportunity to leave before the terrifying end. And he called it a fright break. This is the fright break. Do you hear that sound? It's the sound of a heartbeat. A frightened, terrified heart. Is it beating faster than your heart or slower? This heart is going to beat for another 25 seconds. To allow anyone to leave this theater who is too frightened to see the end of the picture. Ten seconds more and we go into the house. It's now or never. Five, four, you're a brave audience. Two, one. If you wanted to leave the theater, you would get your money back. Apparently the first time they tested this out, the second showing of the theater nearly dumped out and everyone asked for their money back. But William Castle soon figured out that what had happened was people were seeing it the first time, not leaving, because of course they didn't sweep the theaters. You know, anybody that saw the first showing could stay for the second one. So they were watching the first one, staying for the second one, and then leaving and getting their money back for both shows because they had already seen the ending. So he started printing different color tickets for each showing and then started having theater owners owners sweep the theater making everybody get out you know and then having to come back (laughs) obviously most everyone stayed until the end but there were a few people who would ask for their money back and this pissed off theater owners castle responded by shaming the hell out of anyone who asked for their money back (laughs) so he put yellow footprints in the theater that you had to follow and blared an audio track that encouraged people to laugh and point at the coward then they had to sit in the coward's corner in the lobby It was basically a yellow cardboard box where you signed a certificate saying that you were a coward and a nurse would have to take your blood pressure. (laughs) Even though this sounds kind of fun, remember that the audiences for a William Castle film were young men and boys and being called a coward back then was a pretty serious insult. So the 1% of people that asked for their money kind of dwindled back to zero. Just shame the motherfuckers, man. (laughs) That's great. So is this a little too PG rated for the show? No, 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 it's fine. Okay. All right. I was thinking. I'm trying to say fuck as much as I possibly can. All right, good. Well, I was just thinking that maybe after our bodily function series and maybe 
maybe this would be a nice little... I think this is a nice come down, pun intended, from our bodily functions two-parter because we were, those were really fucking gross. Okay, good. So and this I think is this a little is a nice palate cleanser afterward. My mom so will be happy. I, okay. She'll love this one. Castle would produce three more relatively forgotten films in the next couple of years. The first, Mr. Sardonicus, was a British period piece about a man who went to rob a grave for a winning lottery ticket. But when he saw the like disgusting body, he screamed and his face stuck for some reason with a really weird toothy grin. I'll put a picture of it online. I'm going to show you the picture. Are you ready? This is <laughs> okay. what he looked like. Oh, jeez. <laughs> what the fuck is that? Like, how would you... That's frightening, actually. Right. But... Like, that's not the way that a face would ever look anyway no. to get stuck like. No. You would have to cut somebody's fucking lips off and then stick firecrackers in their nose for that. To ha- that's horrible. Right. Apparently, the mask of fake teeth and prosthetics was so uncomfortable that the actor could only wear it for an hour at a time. So most of his scenes are kind of just, like, shot from the back. It was kind of like an Ed Wood trick, you know? It was oh, like, wow. oops, the actor died. Just shoot him turned around around it'll be fine that's fucking terrible and of course there was a gimmick towards the end of the film there is a punishment poll thanks for closing your computer so i can't see that anymore (laughs) the punishment poll allowed audiences to vote on the outcome of mr sardonicus they could show him mercy or convict him and whatever the majority chose would be the ending that they showed oh wow so castle printed glow-in-the-dark cards that audiences would hold up during the punishment poll break and a theater employee would come out and tally the votes i think ordinary punishment is too good for mr sardonicus if you feel that way too if you want to show him no mercy and punish him as he deserves, then hold up your punishment poll ballot with the thumb pointing down, like this. If, on the other hand, uh, you're one of those I-wouldn't-hurt-a-fly kind of people, one of those sweet, nice, kind souls uh, who would let Mr. Sardonicus go free, you should hold your ballot with the thumb pointing up, like this. And now we're ready for the voting. No mercy or mercy. Hold the ballots high, please. 17, carry the three. No mercy. So be it. You have given the verdict. You have made the decision, and the majority of you have sentenced Mr. Sardonicus to further punishment. Mr. Projectionist, let the sentence be carried out. Apparently, no one ever chose the mercy option, and so no one's ever seen that. There's a lot of questions to whether they even shot an alternate option, since, you know, nobody would ever vote to show him mercy. Oh, wow. So he then made the weird choice to make a family comedy, a kind of Jerry Lee Lewis-type screwball comedy movie called Zots! Exclamation point. Zots. Zots. Uh-huh. Okay. Zots. Zots? What's Zots? Zots is about a professor whose live-in niece gets an ancient coin, and he finds out that when he holds it and says Zots, like, dumb shit happens. (laughs) I watched it. It's horrible. There's no redeeming value whatsoever. The gimmick was really that Castle made, like, a kid comedy, you know, when he was a horror movie director, but he distributed Zots coins to everyone in the audience for them to try it. Yeah, stupid. Did it make, I mean, was it a hit? Did it make money? No, it wasn't. It was actually a pretty, a pretty big flop. You you can see it online. It's so stupid. It's just so stupid. It's just the same joke over and over and over again. And of course, it's, that was Jerry Lee Lewis's shtick, you know, so you don't need to see William Castle 
hustle trying to do that. Right. All right. The third film was called 13 Frightened Girls. And it had a much different gimmick. The plot was that 13 girls from different countries get involved in some Cold War espionage thing. And the hope was that by having all of these different girls would lead to larger distribution of the film, all in different countries. Yeah. So he held a kind of like American Idol type contest to help cast the role of each girl. And then everybody who won in the 13 different countries would be flown to U.S. to make the movie. I can't really find much about the movie online, and he even kind of skims over it in his autobiography, so I'm guessing this wasn't a very good one. Interesting. And to be honest, the gimmick thing was starting to get a little old by this time. These tricks were complicated. Like, theater owners wanted to sell tickets, not play, like, kid games. Yeah. And the times were changing again. The Civil Rights Act, Vietnam. By 1964, the era of the 60s was just getting started, and William Castle seemed a little bit behind by this point. So then he decided to try something a little different. Okay. He tried to make a good film. Wow. And this time he only need one gimmick, and that was Joan Crawford. William Castle's opus was the Whatever Happened to Baby Jane slash psycho knockoff called Straight Jacket from 1964. Okay, yeah. We talked about Straight Jacket a little bit in our episode on Hagsploitation, yep, but I, I didn't really jacket. Yeah, I didn't really get into the specifics because I knew that I was working on this episode. So let me start by saying that Straight Jacket is kind of a great, like, bonkers movie. Yeah. It's a lot more explicit than most horror movies at the time, and it's relatively nuts, even as an idea. But since Joan Crawford was the leading actress and had script, wardrobe, and casting approval on everything, Straight Jacket is one of those rare movies where everything about it is over the top. Oh my God! The author of the famed novel Psycho, the director of the widely acclaimed chiller Homicidal, the co-star of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, join forces to create a frightening classic of shock and suspense. Quick plot with spoilers. Okay. Joan Crawford hilariously playing a 29-year-old at the time. I think she was in like her early 50s. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Comes home and sees her husband in bed with another woman while their daughter is home. She takes an axe and chops off both of their heads, which Damn. gets her sent to a mental institution. It's silly to look at now, but at the to- at the time, it was like, it yeah. was done in shadows, you know? Sure, yeah, But yeah. you watch these two people's heads fall off. That was very, that was pretty very, good. No, it's not, not a problem It was that. gruesome, yeah. Yeah, it was good. 20 years later, she's let out of the mental institution and she returns home where her now grown daughter will help take care of her. But weird things keep happening and Joan just gets crazier and crazier as the movie goes on. More axe murders happen and we're led to believe that Joan is doing it all over again. But at the end, Joan walks in and there's a second Joan in the same clothes, jewelry and wig holding an axe. She even has some sort of Joan Crawford skin face mask on too. So like Joan Crawford walks in the door and another Joan Crawford is Is standing there. there. Right. Joan wrestles her to the bed and pulls her mask off. It's her daughter. She had been dressing as Joan Crawford and killing people in a plot to get Joan to go back to the mental institution when really she was the crazy one. I mean, I say that maybe everyone in this movie is nuts. Wow. Yeah. Now I gotta watch this movie. I've never seen this movie. Really, really good one. All right, I'm about to watch it. I mean, when I say really good... I'm sorry. I don't know. I got it from Netflix. Okay, so you ordered it, though. It's not streaming or anything I don't think so, because, you know, a few years ago, they released, like, a box set of all the William Castle movies, so I don't think they're gonna let them online. I know what to get you for Christmas this year. Yeah, straight jacket. So good. 
Whereas Joan Crawford plays a sort of victim in whatever happens to baby Jane, here she was in the first five minutes of a movie with an axe chopping the heads off of two people. And people went crazy for it. Joan traveled with the film and made appearances across the country. Audiences lined up to get a glimpse of her. I mean, she was still a bona fide star, but now with an axe. And she loved every second of it. She was so overwhelmed at one screening that she invited everyone to the diner next to the theater and it caused a riot. And the reviews weren't bad. Of course, people said she was wildly overacting, but no one really blamed her. She actually made a pretty great axe murderess. And when all was said and done, William Castle managed to make a pretty great, albeit very B movie for once. Nice. Unable to cope without a stupid gimmick, he had thousands of cardboard bloody axes made at the last minute to give out to audience members to raise in the air. Yeah, he was just like, I can't help it. I have to do something stupid. So Straight Jacket was pretty much the end of the line for successful William Castle movies. But he directed a few more movies in the 60s. He made The Night Walker in 1964, starring Barbara Stanwyck and Robert Taylor. Okay. It was an attempt to make more of a straightforward film with only a, you know, script and accomplished actors, but it totally didn't work. He followed it up with I Saw What You Did in 1965. I Saw What You Did was supposed to be the return for the two things that worked for William Castle, gimmicks and Joan Crawford. The plot sounds pretty cool. Two girls are prank phone calling people. And when they answer, one of them says, I saw what you did and I know who you are. Don't answer it. Don't answer it. Don't answer it. I saw what you did, and I know who you are. They call a guy who actually just killed his wife, and so he sets out to try to find them, because, of course, he thinks that they know what he did. And Joan Crawford plays a neighbor. So the gimmick was actually pretty decent. He printed phone numbers in the newspaper ads, and when people, mainly teenagers, would call, they got a recorded message saying, I saw what you did, and I know who you are. Meet me at... And then it would be the nearest location and time of the next showing of the movie. That's clever. Yeah. He also had giant plastic phones made to sit outside the theater and even got the phone companies behind the plan. But it totally backfired. Kids across America started making prank phone calls and like tying up all of the phone lines. (laughs) All people across the country started complaining that they were getting all of these phone calls. Funny. The phone companies were like a monopoly back then. And so they pulled the plug on it and Castle had no other choice. He had to oblige. He ended up making a shock section in theaters, but it was really only a few seats that had seat belts. (laughs) You get it? It was like so that they were so shocked in the movie they couldn't jump out of their seats. Right. The gimmicks just weren't really working anymore. You know, America had kind of grown out of it. And what year is this? This is in 1965. Okay. He made a few more B pictures like Let's Kill Uncle in 1966 (laughs) and The Busybody and The Spirit is Willing in 1967. His last film was Project X in 1968. But he had one last trick up his sleeve. He managed to make an actual A film, he made the movie Rosemary's Baby. Oh, that's right. Yeah. He didn't direct the movie. He produced it. But after we talked about it briefly on our episode on Bad Babies, I did a little research to find out how anyone, namely William Castle, could end up with my favorite movie ever. And it's kind of a funny story. He was constantly getting scripts to read, and they were usually cheapy horror films. But horror films in general were kind of out of style in 1967. And in fact, Hollywood was in a weird transitional phase once again. The most notable films that year were The Graduate, In the Heat of the Night, 
Bonnie and Clyde, Cool Hand Luke, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and In Cold Blood. Not exactly the type of films that William Castle made. So when his literary agent handed him Rosemary's Baby, he wasn't phased at all. But once he read it, he bought it immediately for $150,000. And then the story starts to get a little murky. It's true that Paramount wanted to make it bad and came to William Castle to either buy it off of him or to get him to produce it since they knew he would probably get it made quickly and under budget. When he insisted on directing him, they asked him to meet with Roman Polanski. So there's kind of two sides to this story. Castle describes the meeting and says he realized Polanski was right for the job, but everyone else says Paramount didn't even give him a chance to direct it himself. Either way, they got along pretty well and managed to make a a really great film. Even got to be in a small cameo. He was totally expecting to win Best Picture. And if Rosemary's Baby won Best Picture that year, the producers are the ones that accept it. So he would, William Castle would have won an Oscar for Best Picture. That would have been great. But there was a lot of backlash from Rosemary's Baby. Catholic groups were really pissed off about it. Uh, You know, it was, it, it ended up being very, very controversial. And it didn't even get nominated for Best Picture. But the film was a huge financial success, and he made a fortune off of it. He maintains that his deal was 50% of the profits. So if that's true, then he made around $8 million off of his initial $150,000 script. That's a good investment. So that's not bad. Yeah. Right. And that's 1967? 67, yeah. That's 1967 dollars. Right, yeah. That's a shit ton of money now. Shit ton of money. Rosemary's Baby made him plenty of money, and he never really did better than that. The last film he directed was a vehicle for Marcel Marceau, the French mime. You know him? I I know the name. It's called Shanks. I don't think I have to tell you (laughs) that it didn't really go well. He produced a film about killer cockroaches in 1975 called Bug. I remember Bug. Yeah, and he managed to pull one more gimmick off. What he really wanted was theaters equipped with roach seats, he called them, (laughs) which were like seats seats that had these like windshield wiper type brushes that would brush up on your legs so it would feel like roaches were on you. This was way after theaters cared about gimmicks anymore, and of course the studio wouldn't pay for him he settled on a one million dollar insurance policy on a cockroach named hercules that he toured around with the film and this would be the last of the william castle movies he died a few years after bug but he left behind a lot of fans at the height of castle mania in the early 60s he had a fan club that had over two hundred and fifty thousand members wow House on Haunted Hill was remade in 1999 with Jeffrey Rush and Tay Diggs. You remember that? Yes, I, yes, I do. 13 Ghosts was remade in 2001 with Shannon Elizabeth and Matthew Lillard. Yes, I remember that as well. The movie Matinee in 1993 had John Goodman play a William Castle-like character that comes to Key West to screen a movie called Mant. Okay, I remember Man and that Ant. Mant, yeah. yeah. Where a man turns into an ant and terrorizes everyone. Hello, I'm Lawrence Wolsey. And I want to warn you about something that could happen. Something that does happen in my newest motion picture. If a man and an ant were exposed to radiation simultaneously, the result would be terrible indeed. For the result would be... Mant. John Goodman buzzes seats, has a man dressed like Mant run into the audience, and a fake nurse in the lobby... It's not really that great of a movie, but, you know, it's it's worth a watch. Definitely based on William Castle. 
And filmmakers and producers use gimmicks all the time to get butts in seats now. John Waters was obviously one of William Castle's biggest fans. Mm-hmm. He used a gimmick called Odorama in his movie <laughs> Polyester from 1981. You remember this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the movie, Divine would catch a whiff of something and start to follow it. A number would pop up on the screen and you would take the Odorama scratch and sniff card you were given and smell what she was smelling. The odors were roses, flatulence, model airplane glue, pizza, gasoline, skunk, natural gas, new car smell, dirty shoes, and air freshener. I should note that Castle was not the only person making dumb gimmicks in the 60s. John Waters based Odorama on a 1960s film gimmick called Smell-O-Vision that launched along with the film Holiday in Spain. At certain times in the movie, various scents would be pumped into theaters, but apparently didn't really work very well. It was loud when it was pumping out smells. Also, people in the balcony got it delayed, so it didn't really make sense. And the people on the floor only got it faintly, so everyone was making sniffing sounds, which was distracting. So you'd like be watching the movie, and you would realize the smell. And everybody, be like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was the end of Smellorama. The movie Clue, based on the board game in 1985, had three completely different endings in theaters. So you could go see it and then go across town and see it again with a different ending, similar to Mr. Sardonicus. Mr. Payback in 1995 had joysticks mounted in theaters where audiences could steer the plot. In 1964, the movie The Thrill Killers, the director would show up to screenings in a mask with a knife and run down the aisles to scare audiences. Wow. And obviously there was the relaunch of 3D a few years ago. But here's a couple of less cheeseball ideas. The Blair Witch Project mania started with missing persons posters all over the Cannes Film Festival. D-Box, which is a horrible name, was created for the Fast and Furious in 2009 and was basically like a vibrating seat a la The Tingler. And rumor has it that the producers of Snuff, which you talked about in Scourge of the Homeless, hired women's rights groups to protest outside the movie until it got enough attention to outrage people on its own. All of that influenced by William Castle. Yeah, yeah. So that kind of brings us up to date. That's the gimmicks of William Castle. What do you think? Well, it was great. I learned a lot about William Castle, Mm -hmm. but I've got three to go along with you. Good. So, the countdown clock you talked about in Homicidal. Mm-hmm. So, there's a Gaspar Noe movie called I Stand Alone. Oh, that's right. That's right. And at the end of that, right before the final scene, you are given a chance to leave the to theater. leave, right. And, that's, it's a, and it's a shocker of an ending. It's scene. a shocker of an it's, ending, too. It's yes. like a, he like molests his daughter or and so kills it's, it's, her. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fucked up. Yeah, yeah. But it's a very that's castle That's right. I totally forgot gimmick. about that. Yeah. And then two things from, all right, one is from Disney World, believe it or not, mm-hmm. where, and what it was, was it was a 3D experience. So, you had a 3D glasses on. Mm-hmm. But then they would have bugs moving along in your seat, uh, and they had like oh you know God, wind yeah. and water, and so they had all the the William Castle esque effects. Right. But they at, at the end they were like, "Oh, there's a bug in your seat," and oh, it would move along. It was very castle esque. That's so funny. And then the, the other one was another theme park ride, and it was the like Terminator ride mm-hmm. at Universal. And James Cameron actually had filmed the the footage for it and had helped design it. And it was a 3D thrill ride, very similar to that. So you had 3D glasses, but also like there'd be this time travel shit, and then like puff of smoke and like. Like actors who were portraying, you know, Sarah Connor and the Terminator and whatever would show up on stage and they're like, this is the revolution or whatever, you know, but I yeah, mean, yeah. they were, it was real actors that would come in there and then it would transmit to the screen. I see what you're saying. And then they had like smoke and it, so it was a 3D thrill ride, but right. it also had, it just reminded me of the skeleton where it looked like it came out of the screen. That's mm-hmm. what they did with this, this 3D sure, um, yeah. Terminator ride. Right. And it would be real actors that were shooting shit up and it was crazy. So, right, but, sure. but they used a lot of castle like effects in right. it and it was by blending real people 
in with what was on the screen and shit yeah. like that. It was cool. Wasn't there like Michael Jackson and Captain Neo or something like I feel, that? All right, so they had the Captain EO thing. I, I never saw that. I have no idea. But I, I think, think there I were saw some, it. I think there were some of that in there too. Yeah. Very castle-esque type of I real 3D stuff. Moved I think and so it too. was 3D and there, I don't know, they sprayed you with water or something. Some Michael like Jackson that. juice so, yeah. in your face. All that yeah. seems to stem from that, that yeah. whole 3D thing. So yeah. Yeah. So that is my episode on William Castle. It's fascinating. It's uh, great. Yeah. I've got a couple of references. So he wrote a book called Step Right Up, I'm Gonna Scare the Pants Off America. That <laughs> was by William Castle. Nice. It's an interesting read. He wasn't a book writer, really. And it was a little cheese ball for my taste, but definitely had some interesting facts. And then again, also reading the way that he recorded history and the way that maybe history was, was a little different. Um, so that was kind of interesting. Yeah. They also made a documentary out of it. It's called Spine Tingler, The William Castle Story, oh, wow. which you can see on Netflix, um, which is which is pretty good. Again, it's a little G-rated for my taste, but, you know, was fun. And then the book that I talked about, Crackpot, The Obsessions of John Waters, he does a, a chapter that's uh, that talks about whatever happened to showmanship, about yeah. movies and showmanship, and it talks mostly about William Castle. So that was kind of a an interesting take on it, too. So, I don't know, I, I find him fascinating just it because, fascinating. you know, in true Doris Wishman sense, he was a shitty director. You know, I mean, the films weren't very good, and he really just did it to kind of make a buck. What he really loved, I think, was watching the theater be pandemonium. I think that was, you know, throwing popcorn and right. everyone screaming and teenagers Chaos and, you know, the whatever. I mean, he just loves stupid, idiotic gimmickry. No, it's great. And I think that's fascinating. You it know, is fascinating. it was really cool because when you think about going to the movies, it's a very passive experience. You sit there, you watch it, and then you either like it or you don't. And he was like, nah, fuck that. Like, I want this to be like a carnival ride. Yeah. You know? And one other thing to add, too. Okay, so this last, and I know you saw it, too. This last December, I saw Hateful Eight on the 70-millimeter yeah, roadshow, and it had the program and everything. Mm-hmm. And even though I know that was a thing that they did with prestige pictures back in the day when they right. showed them, I feel like it's very Castle-esque now just because we haven't done it in so long that it seems like it fits more in that kind of gimmick style these days than right. as a Castle-esque gimmick than a throwback to how films used to be portrayed. You know what I mean? Like, it seems very sure. gimmicky now. And well, to me, the biggest gimmick of it was that he actually had a 15-minute intermission. That's true. And then when the movie came back on, they were like, here's what you missed in the last 15 minutes. I mean, that is a total screen gimmick. Yeah, you know, it is. Like, a la The Tingler, you know, which is just kind of like, during this part you missed that wasn't that doesn't even exist, you yeah. know? That was a total gimmick. And I loved it. I mean, I fell for that one. I did, too. I thought it was great. I, yeah, thought, I love I seeing it that way. I thought that was amazing, yeah. So, so I think that was probably the latest gimmicky type yeah. of thing that I've seen. And it was yeah. great. Well, people will still be doing it. Like, I mean, sure. even, you know, with Toto Vision and Cinemascope. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. there's always constant ways of them trying to... Laser projection. Exactly. Yeah. Like, I think all of that came from, you know, William Cass. Of course, he ripped it off from everybody else. Sure. Too, so. But he did. But he was great at doing it. Yeah. At ripping it off. Anyway, I just found him fascinating. It is fascinating. It's an interesting, very interesting uh, subject matter. I think this is a good companion piece to your Doris Wishman. You know, somebody yeah. that most people don't know about, but I found it fascinating. And I think that anyone else who's listening will find it fascinating too. Yeah. So, good deal. So Doris Wishman, William Castle, and I don't know, maybe Roger Corman next? Maybe. Why maybe. not? Yeah. yeah we'll, we'll see. see. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks, everyone. Yeah. Thanks and, for listening. Uh, we'll see you next week. All right. Thanks for listening to Slums of Film History. You can find us on the web at slumsoffilmhistory.com where you can view links to some of the movies we talk about today, along with pictures, videos, and additional resources, as well as Bad Movie Monday, our recommendation for the worst of the worst films every Monday night. If you want to keep up with us, we're on Facebook and Twitter, where we share out a lot of additional content. 
And as always, please fact check us and let us know if we left anything out. We're not professionals, just two friends that love gross movies. Gross movies.